Okay, so today I'm in, in London talking to Matthew Trenhill. Thanks very much, Matthew. After a few false starts, I've managed to managed to get you in the seat. Um, when I asked you what you do or how to describe yourself, you said rather self-depreciatingly, I'm a betting industry nerd. So we'll go straight into that. I mean, why, why, why would you say that? Well, it, it's, it's a little bit of a joke. Um, so my, <laughs> my father used to always uh, use nerd as a sort of very derisory word. And uh, he would always, he's, funny thing is, he's a very academic guy. And I think a lot of people associate nerd with the idea of, you know, just someone who, you know, really swats at school or something like that. But he would always say, like, no, a nerd is someone who just accumulates useless information. He said, you know, don't be that. He says, if you want to learn about something, put it into practice, do it. That's fine. You know, a profession or a discipline or whatever it is. But yeah, so he said, nerds just accumulate useless facts. And I thought to myself, I almost sort of embraced this in a little way because I thought to myself, yeah, I have spent most of the last 20 years basically not turning away any information on the betting industry. And it turns out some of it is useless. It turns out some of it's been quite useful over the years. So yeah, so I'm sort of happy to embrace the nerd uh, thing. But I, you know, I've got to the point now where I've got a good few people who will just sort of call me up and ask like, do you know anything about this? And I think to myself, oh, I do actually know something about that. Yeah, so, and, uh, so yeah, so I'm, I'm quite happy to be a nerd in that regard. Okay, now I've you know, had to do a fair bit of research on you. One thing I've found is that you're extremely highly respected amongst people in the betting industry. A lot of people have said, you know, what a sort of talented and nice guy and all the rest of you. There's so much you've done though, so I'm just gonna dive into the first thing that piqued my interest. You worked for a golf betting syndicate for 18 months, uh, Mustard Systems. Mm. I mean, what does working for a setup like that entail? I mean, what part, what role did you play in it? Well, I can't speak for every syndicate, but I, I, the ones I'm sort of more closely familiar with, generally you need a group of, or at least a mathematician, more often than not, someone to do coding and someone to do trading. The, that sort of little triangle seems to be fairly consistent from what I have seen. And quite often, you know, one of those areas can be more important to the area that you're in than another. Um, but in the case of, you know, in case of golf, you need guys who can come up, you know, find a way to model the sport. Um, and that normally requires some, you know, a decent level of mathematics. And then you need people who can convert that into code. And then you need people to watch over. And the dream is always to get something as automated as possible when you're betting, something that can scale so you can do, you know, whether it's horse racing or golf or football or whatever, more bets, more matches, more leagues, more races, you know, the better. So always the, the, the coders are important to be able to get that scale. And then, yeah, the, the traders are kind of, they're generally to spot when the maths looks like it's doing something that is counter intuition. Now, quite the, the challenging part is that quite often what is counterintuitive is the best betting spots, you know, where it feels uncomfortable. That's often where the best value is in these things. Um, but they can also spot things just where, well, the maths can't take into account this very obvious factor. And it's probably too hard to code something that would work. So it's better to have a human watching. And of course, things just stop working. So you need a human to be able to hit the kill switch and be able to stop it. Um, but my, my capacity was uh, uh, trading the model that they'd built. 
and uh, I did it predominantly for the European tour at the time. And yeah, it's just a case of proprietary trading in that scenario is predominantly on the exchanges. Um, but you know, we try to monetize the, the true probabilities that we come up with as best as possible. Classical example is a lot of people try to do a bit of insurance if they can. So people who want to insure against uh, big sponsorship payouts, that kind of thing. Uh, I believe that, I want to say that Paddy Power had a division that did that for some time and Sports Risk and some of these other companies. It, it sort of, it, it, you know, the gouging that goes on in the insurance industry. You know, if you're Manchester United and you want to insure against uh, paying bonuses to everyone for winning the treble or something like that, you know, insurance companies will give you three to one about it or something. Really, you know, and whereas I think a lot of people in that betting, smart betting world thought well, we can be more competitive there, but hard to get that hard to get that business generally it seems but um but yeah so um yeah from my perspective it was just generally uh um give feedback to the math guys math guys look at it tell me whether there's any anything about my instinct or not if we need to make a change goes to the other desk goes to the coders and comes back and that's the sort of circular uh, circular route um there can be you know there are syndicates that aren't based around math models, based around you know teams of runners going around betting shops and these kind of things. Um, but most of my experience has been around the guys who like try to beat the exchanges, that kind of stuff. And, and was it already a proven winning syndicate before you joined, or were you part of that evolution? Uh, it uh, the owner had uh, a long history of winning at I'd say just about anything he touched. Um, but I think the golf had originally been just a sort of a personal pet project of his and then it came out that he sort of set it, you know, he really tried to grow it. Um, but yeah, I think for a lot of the big uh, exchange syndicates, it's sort of the same problem repeating over and over again. How do we come up with the best true probabilities? Once we've got that, how's the best way to place the bets on the exchange to optimize getting matched versus, you know, getting the right prices? And, uh, and yeah, that's sort of generally, it sounds, I don't want to be a killjoy, but quite often the initial approaches, whether it's football or basketball or golf, it, it seems like we go through the same iterations each time. And uh, it, it can be quite sort of similar, find data, build model, find best way to bet model, rinse and repeat for different sports. Um, but it's, it's funny because people who do sports generally to do, try and go into other sports. Um, but horse racing often sort of has its own. Horse racing is uh, a sort of a exceptional challenge to model, I would say, and so it tends to attract people who've sort of dedicated themselves. You know, people like Jelco and the Woods Group and people like that. You know, they're they're pretty hyper focused on it because it's you've really got to be on the ball there. Okay, and I was interested to read that early in your career, and we are flitting around a bit mm -hmm. here, but early in your career. You were trading golf, but you're also pricing and trading rugby. Why? How did those? What you know? What is their connection? Is it just because you knew about those sports, or was it thrust upon you and get wised up on this? How did that come about? Seems well, unlikely bedfellows. Um, obviously, you need public school boys to trade uh, rugby union. So um, I suppose that was uh, it. To be honest, uh, it was a luxury at the time to even have people who did multiple sports but the spread betting guys were able to employ multiple people um, on good salaries to do different things. 
I've started on golf because, um, first of all, I really liked the guys who were working on golf anyway at the time, but the fascination was that they had uh, a pretty decent golf tournament simulation. This is in 2000 or whatever. Um, and uh, the joke at the time was, uh, it's not rocket science, but it actually is. And the joke was because the guy who built the original one had worked for a British uh, NASA equivalent. So uh, that was it. But it, and this is the first time I'd ever seen anything, the very concept of mathematically modeling a sport. And there were other sports around at that time where no one was using any mathematical models, but golf was. And so I was just straight away, I want to be involved with that. I played golf and I watched a lot of golf and I was like, that just seemed obvious. Um, but then in time, the, the, I sort of, I suppose, arrogance of youth, but I kind of chafed a bit at it. And um, after a while, I wanted to try something different. And I knew rugby, I'd played rugby. So, um, and there's not many people who want to do rugby. Uh, generally, like a lot of a lot of new young guys join, they're interested in horse racing or football a lot of the time, and it's kind of hard work to find people for other sports. So we had one guy doing all the rugby union, and it was early noughties. There was a boom in the amount of rugby being shown on TV, and uh, so yeah, so I ended up doing that. So I never really did them both at the same time, um, but yeah, I switched over to that, and yeah, very different, uh, very different, you know very different, uh, it's very hard to model rugby, generally. Um, and then once you watch the game, there's a lot that goes on on the, on the pitch in rugby that uh, is sort of hard to quantify, but you know it's like you can see such a physical attritional game, you can often tell, okay, they're keeping that up all right now, but second half, they've been battered, they've tackled. And like, I'm sure now you can get these nice running stats of tackle counts and something. I'm sure that's all of it. But back then, you kind of had to be aware that you sort of be seeing like, oh, this looks quite competitive. But in the back of your mind, you're thinking, this isn't gonna go well for these boys in the second half. Um, or the wind was massively one direction or the other, or God, sloping pitches back in the day and all this kind of stuff. So, um, so it felt like, <laughs> even though golf is an individual sport with a lot of psychology in it, they sort of mathematized it strongly, whereas rugby just felt like voodoo dark arts a lot of the time, and I found myself second-guessing myself a, a huge amount of the time. And were the sharks in the water better than rugby? Yeah, I would say um, the pool of like very smart people was, um, I'd say, smaller, but they really, really knew it inside out. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the pinnacle of rugby betting in my time, um, I don't know whether he bets now, but was uh, the head of rugby at Sporting Index at the time. And, uh, and yeah, I'd, I'd say he was, uh, felt like impossible to beat, to be quite honest. Um, but, um, but yeah, there was a lot of other people. And it's one of those games where even people who aren't professional punters, who just really know the game inside out, and the new starting fly half would come in and you'd be thinking, oh, I don't know, it looks like a kid, you know, is he any good? But this person would have like watched them like play like under 15s and they're like, this kid's the next starter for Wales. And you'd be like, oh shit, I didn't know. Like, it's one of those things where just being a passionate fan of the sport could get you an edge. You might not know exactly, you know, what the price should be, but you would often know, well, there's no way the bookmakers have factored in the little piece that I know. And so people would make money just on that. And of course, people who just happened to live near the bloody ground and knew when the rain had started was the other inevitable uh, 
I remember the first time when we had to start looking for webcams and we found that people, people had webcams for just bizarre reasons. Like you just have a webcam on the top of a church spire in a town or uh, bird watching webcams. And it would just so happen that they would be next to the ground. And like you'd go on BBC at the time and it would just have like sun and cloud just over Wales. And then you look on the webcam, it's like, it looks pissing down to me. So like that was, um, that was the first time we had to really go out and try and find decent weather information. But, um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was very, very different the way they did golf and rugby at the time. So did you build up like a, a network of, sort of informants from various clubs and that sort of thing? Was that all part of the game? We did not do that at the time as much as possibly would have been sensible to do. But we did have, so there was a, a lovely chap, um, Ian Davies, who used to speak to every bookmaker in the UK about rugby. And he'd call up at the beginning of the week. And the funny thing is, is you'd speak to him and say, oh, yeah, I just spoke to the guy at Labbrooks and he said he quite fancies this. And you knew that this was a merry-go-round of information. And the funny thing is, is that it, it probably benefited us all because it probably stopped anyone if someone knew that so-and-so someone was injured or something like that, that kind of information got into the network. But he was at the centre of all of it. And um, it's funny because he you know, had a, a sort of a, a strong Welsh accent and people used to be able to, you know, the phone would, you know, you'd hear one of the bet takers shout out, got Ian Davies on the phone for you. And like, well, yeah, you knew that you'd have a, he was a lovely guy and you'd, you'd have a good chat, and, but you invariably knew that you were, um, you were not only hearing his opinions, but sort of the aggregated opinions of all the other people he chatted to. So it's like a bit like a human rugby tissue, if you like. Okay, Matthew. Now, um, you went into the city after that. Uh, risk management, um, sort of trading currency. Yeah. Why, why did you move away from the uh, betting industry? So um, a story that I suppose many traders will be familiar is uh, my then... Uh, long-term girlfriend to be my wife uh, found that she wanted to see me on the weekends more as uh, I think many traders found and um, that neatly coincided with a round of redundancies at IG Index um, so when I came to looking for a new work um, it meant that uh, I was uh, looking for something that would be more Monday to Friday and having worked at IG we were the floor above the financial spread betting trading sort of floor which ended up being they wanted to focus on that they wound down the sports betting to, to nothing in the end um, and I thought to myself I remember at the time first of all I was just like oh can I can I have a job downstairs and no you no you can't I'm like, okay fair enough um, but uh, I had a friend who said oh there might be a, a firm that's looking to hire and that kind of stuff and I said I don't really know anything about it and my former boss who it was said, uh, don't worry, you'll be fine. Um, and sure enough, yeah, it wasn't, uh, wasn't as uh, hard as I was expecting. But basically, yeah, so I worked in uh, what they call the retail sector. So people who have, I don't know, anything from 2K to 100K who want to trade their own stocks, foreign exchange, gold, oil, all that kind of stuff. And they generally wanted to do it on leverage, sort of on margin trading. So, you know, they wanted to be able to use 10, 50 back then, 100, even 200 to 1 leverage they had back then uh, before it sort of became more regulated. Um, 
And, uh, and yeah, so these were basically punters, people who wanted to speculate with their own. And the way you did it was either through, if you were UK, you invariably did it with a spread bet, which was tax-free, or a, if you weren't UK-based, a CFD contract for difference, which was basically a spread bet, but without the tax benefit, um, or spot FX, actual real foreign exchange trading. And it was all, it was all with these sort of incredible high leverage. Um, and so you turned up, and I was kind of like, I think I thought it would be more, professional sounds harsh, but I thought it would be more um, serious and sort of po-faced and you know, very strict risk controls and all the rest of it. And you found out that at the time, that whole industry was transitioning to, so we'd have what the, you know, the model that developed was called A book, B book. So A book was people that you hedged directly in the market. So if they bought gold, you would go buy gold, you know, whatever it was, if they bought Vodafone, you'd go buy it and B-Book, which is when you wouldn't hedge. And B-Book at one point started very small and grew and grew, and then they also used to start every new customer as an A-Book, and they would hedge everything. And then when it was proven that maybe they were not very good at what the financial trading, they'd move into B-Book. And then we got all the way to the point where everyone opened in B-Book. Because if we think of whatever number you want to think of as hypothetically the number of winning sports bettors percentage in a bookmaker, well, you can easily divide that by 100, and that's nearly the percentage of people who make money financial trading, especially with this high leverage scenario, because it made it very hard. It's like when you were betting on credit, it made it very hard to be disciplined and to risk manage yourself. So literally, we were giving them the rope to hang themselves with, unfortunately. Um, and yet, yeah, we'd have lots of people who'd blow up an account, you know, they'd deposit 10 grand on Monday, and by Friday, they'd wipe themselves out. And so you realize that essentially, for the most part, it, it had become bookmaking. Um, and so if the position sometimes, if you had a lot of people in this B book, because people would herd, so you'd get everyone suddenly like, everyone's buying oil because oil's gonna go to $200 a barrel or whatever. And you get to this point where would be like, well, we think they're mostly wrong, but we've got to cut some of the position. And of course, in that situation, you could just hedge. And we could hedge very cheaply relative to what the spreads that people were paying who bet traded with us. So, um, so yeah, so we, risk management kind of fell into that category. And then with the sharp guys, the actual genuine sharp guys, the A book, it was generally around when you've got a position, you can hedge it with different places. And there'll be different people who have different, some are widespread, narrow, some have got high cost, low costs. Um, some you've got a better overnight cost, all these different things. So the hedging became almost like doing a very quick decision at times about where was the best place to place the hedge. Um, but that increasingly was automated. Um, FX for me was the most interesting because there's no world exchange that FX is traded on. It's banks, so banks have a price and they often get aggregated. So uh, the lead software that we use at the time was a software called Currenex, and you'd have UBS, Goldman Sachs, Deutsche Bank, JP Morgan, all these banks would just stream via API their prices, and you'd be able to see them like an odds checker or whatever, and you'd just be able to hit the best one quite easily. Yeah, now I want to butt in there, because that in the layman's terms is our thing, isn't it? Pretty much. Well, the, the amount, the, the, the spread was incredibly narrow when you've got those many people involved 
But if you think of when the book went 99%, that went instantly because there were people who'd built algorithmic machines to literally pay, take that and they'd go, you know, the, the gap would appear again. So, um, so really, you know, everyone was looking to take best price and it's like, a, it's like having an exchange market that's trading at close to 100% permanently, except it trades at 100% in large amounts of money. Um, but yeah, every time it would dip, then you'd get this instant correction because someone's robot somewhere would be, uh, be hitting the banks. But the banks had to actually price something. There was someone who had to devise the method for pricing those exchanges. You know. And what happens, it's the funny thing is after a while, pricing just becomes um, jockeying for position amongst the order book. So, you know, it's like you can start out with a price, you know, when you're going to bet a horse, but, you know, but, you know, by the time Betfair's sort of up and down and all the rest of it, you're kind of, you're in the flow of the money. And so your price and FX trades uh, all the time. So, um, but yeah, but that always interested me because sometimes they'd pull the prices, disappear. So like, oh, Goldman Sachs is not pricing dollar yen anymore. You'd be like, oh, someone's fucked up. You know, someone's made an error, you know. And, um, or sometimes their spreads would go really wide, you know, massively wide. And you'd be like, oh, what's going on? Who knows what here? Or the price would suddenly, they'd move their price well away from the main market. And you're thinking to yourself, well, eight banks here worth trillions of dollars. One bank deciding to go 2% the other way. What does that mean? So like, it was interesting to watch the game. It's like, it's like having eight incredible poker players around a table going heads up against each other in a way. Um, and it was sort of interesting to see how the prices move. That's what FX was always the most, you know, stocks and stuff for me. A lot of it's, you know, pension funds buying stocks or whatever. But um, FX is always the interesting side for me. But yeah, I, I did that for six years. And to be honest, yeah, imagine a bookmaker where everyone's incapable of winning money, you've got perfect pricing, and you can hedge perfectly if ever there is anyone who can, you know, it, it, it's actually too easy a game in a weird way. So, um, but yeah, so it was after that that I ended up uh, coming back to betting, actually. Yeah, so we can talk about that because risk management features in your CV. Um, can you tell us, in layman's terms, what risk management actually is? What, you know, boil it down to the basics of it right so particularly with bookmaking you got your liabilities which is what you have to pay out and then for me there's the risk so if Tony Bloom bets football with me in you know a grand the liability if he's taking even money may only be a grand but the risk is high relative to the size because he's a very smart guy. It's every chance that he's got the best of me there. By contrast, if I have someone who is a lunatic losing punter, you know, they can be betting 20, 100K with me and the liability is big, but in my mind, the risk is much less so because in my mind, I'm projecting forward his betting record I'm thinking well even if he wins this bet he's probably going to double up next match or he's going to come back so for me risk is about um, 
looking at basically not just the payout, because I think a lot of people think when they think of risk, they think of trimming the worst case scenario. To me, the worst case scenario very often is good for you. You know, if we think back to sort of, you know, just conventional, everyone's piled on the jolly in the horse race, you know, often the jolly, well, I don't know whether horse racing's changed now, but you know, if the, if the jolly is invariably the, the worst case scenario, it's still good. You've still done good business. Funnily enough, I would say one of the better exponents of this, in, in my mind, is actually Ben Keith, because I would, um, speak, I, I only really met Ben in person recently, but I would speak to other people, and, um, and they said, uh, well, do you know what, you know, Ben is not a cavalier bookmaker, he's not just, you know, going crazy all over the place, but when he's got the best of it, and he knows he's in a good spot, he lays a decent-sized bet. And I was like, oh, you know, what's a decent-sized bet? And I heard some of the numbers, and I'm like, that is a decent-sized bet. So Ben, I think acutely, like people would say, like, oh, why is he not taking, you know, or any bookmaker, it doesn't have to be a star, you know, it can be anyone, like, why are they not taking, you know, I don't know, 10K limits on the, you know, the 9 a.m. horse racing prices? And it's like, well, because the risk of bad risk at that time is very, very high uh, relative to the liabilities. Whereas, oh, but someone's willing to lay, you know, half a million one minute before the off on the favourite. Yeah, that's, that understand, for me, risk management is about understanding the difference between risk and liability. And our, our current bookmakers now, um, cutting out the risk management altogether by just cutting out those punters that you would think in the horse racing equivalent of Tony Bloom, if you've been, had your pants taken down a few times, just get rid of him rather than have to worry about it. Is that how it works? I, I mean... Essentially, if you can only take bets off people who, as far as you're concerned, are low risk, then you don't have to then worry about uh, the liabilities, really, because all, you know, all liability is healthy liability. Um, and it makes, uh, makes your life much easier then. You don't have to do that uh, scale weighing process in your mind anymore. Is there um, no value to the knowledge that a sharp punter brings, or is that outweighed by just not having the hassle of... Well, uh, I, think, I think there is. Um, I think that it's important not to trivialise how hard it is to monetize sharp money. You know, there are times that you can take a sharp bet and it doesn't benefit you. So it's a long game for starters. Um, you know, and the idea is, is that you... Uh, need to then know how to shape your book based off the information that you've taken. And you've also got to know where you're likely to take money from people who aren't the sharp betters. And I think there's a lot of people out there probably, probably just think like, well, this is all, you know, lay bet, shorten odds, move all odds out, done. And it's, I, I would contest that it's, it's more, you know, everything from when they've placed the bet, what's the motivation behind the bet, it's like sometimes you've got to move the bet and cut your losses. You know, if you suddenly find out that one horse has withdrawn, you know, or whatever, you know, like anti-post book, let's say, so you've not got rule four, whatever, it's like, well, you've lost that money. Square it off. Now we've got to reshape the book, you know, off that. And other times you'll be thinking, well, I can see his angle there, but, um, you know, if that's the angle. So, for example, if he's taken a horse that goes really well on heavy, let's say, you may be thinking to yourself, oh, 
hang on, it says good to soft. I'll call the clerk of the course. Oh, yeah, we've had a bit of rain recently. Oh, well, I'm really happy. I've like, oh, watered it and stuff. So, yeah, monetizing that isn't easy. But I think that there is huge reward when you solve that puzzle or get closer to solving that puzzle. Right, Matthew, I'm interested. I, I heard an interview with you where you said that it was good to get three good opinions on an event. Now, does three good opinions make a syndicate? Possibly. I think, it'd be, I think it's a very nice starting place. Um, but, uh, I mean, the, well, quite often at least two opinions, I think, is a good starting point. Um, Matthew Benham and Tony Bloom together, once upon a time. Um, Bill Bentner and... Um, brain's gone, Alan Woods. Um, but yeah, you know, quite often having um, two, two people who come with different perspectives, absolutely, I think um, is a good starting point to coming up with something that will, will have real value. The third, the third is one of those things where I think you don't necessarily need three if the first two have got different opinions on how to do things. I think that's the real, real value. You know, I, if I'm horse racing, you know, it's like, can I have someone who handicaps by weight and someone who does speeds and sectionals? Right, when you, when you combine, we've got a nice overview of everything kind of thing. Um, whereas if you've got two people who are very good at the same discipline, combining them together gets you extra value by combining them, but even better. But the reality is, is that the third opinion can always be the market. So what you can do is, and, and Bill Bentner is well known for this, is that he incorporated the pool money as it was updating in the Hong Kong pools into his so he always had a second opinion in the sense that he had the humility to know my price is the best when it's combined with the market information so but I think three you know if you've got two people who've got a good idea and they're willing to use the market as the third guide yeah that that definitely gets you to a point where you can start to do some smart things I'd say okay I'm interested in the in the sports betting market compared to horse racing that you assume that everybody in sport well you'd hope that everybody in sports betting is trying so certain moves for certain competitors would be based on maths and algorithms and things like that how does that compare to the real insider knowledge that could outweigh all the maths and the experts in horse racing you'd have to take a different view on different moves you know and so I think I think a lot of people sort of try to do like a completely different approach to accommodate that. And I think the reality is, is that if there's any doubts, you know, if it's group one race, you know, good as gold, everyone trying, you know, it's that it's approach A and you've got higher limits, higher confidence kind of thing. And if it's a race where, you know, you maybe feel that some of the trainers, you know, got more of a gambling yard kind of thing, or you maybe have some doubts over certain elements or whatever trying or not trying i think a lot of people say like well let's build something that can accommodate that information or somehow let's let's sort of track how that trainer performs with runners who've not run for this many days for da, 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 da. and it's like probably is a good way to do that and i'm sure smart people have got close to it but to me it's just a case of if you know if i'm a bookmaker it's like, well, I'm laying to lose a grand in that race and I'll lay to lose <laughs> 20 in the other race. So for me, it's kind of, you know, you, you lay smaller bets and you move quicker. 
And if you find that, and, and the thing is, is I think, um, you know, it, the friendless horse is, I think people are kind of hesitant because in a book, it's not, if you've got laid no bets on a horse, like the second favorite, you're there thinking to yourself, oh, that'd be a nice result. And then suddenly, at some point, it's got to dawn on you, no one's come for this horse whatsoever. And you're suddenly thinking, yeah, I better find out where they will come for it. 72 to fours, nope, 92, nope. Oh, and then that's, and that's where you get this sort of cascade where suddenly everyone's realizing no one will bet this thing at any price. And that's terrifying. And then that, but I think, I think people are slow to do that discovery of where's the money going to come in because they just think it's so nice to have that book where you're like, oh, so these three horses, we clean up, you know, you know, that's all right. And this one's terrible and that one's okay kind of thing. Like you, you sort of, it's very easy to think to yourself, oh, but making job done. The reality is, is that if ever you haven't taken any bets on anything sort of, especially near the front of the market, I'm starting to wonder, yeah, what, what, what's the real price of this? This sort of just, because, but make it, you know, the money is distributed across, you know, you're not seeing every bet in the world. Um, uh, but the reality is, is that all of you may be sat there thinking, yeah, no one's come for this and right, your, price, must, a, price must be right. I want your opinion on this question. How much data would you need to analyse before you could come to a solid conclusion about whether a punter was any good? I'd say it has grown more and more by the year that I'm in the industry. So I would have, I would have happily said, that, you know, 20-year-old me would literally be like, 100 bets in, guy's killing us. We need to really, you know, really get aggressive when he comes on. I'm, I've got to be moving, you know, moving aggressively, all the rest of it. Um, and then it sort of has crept up and up. And then I sort of, particularly looking at things like Joseph Bookdahl's work, football data, he, um, he does a lot of analysis of like sample sizes to prove that your record is not just the product of luck. How likely is it that it's because of skill? And you start plugging, he's got a spreadsheet and just plug in numbers into that and you're thinking, you know, what, you know, how, how many bets, what sort of probability would I need there to be not luck before I sort of would take it seriously? You think, well, you know, if there's a one in five chance that, that you know, it's luck, you know, okay, well, that, that's probably starting to look smart, one in 10, one in 100. But the funny thing is I've, I've, I've got to the point now where I've started to see some betting records, which are in the tens of thousands, and you can take huge chunks out of these betting records and it's like that statistically measured that as a betting record he's actually got a crystal ball this section take this chunk out he's a mug we'll give him you know we'll, we'll invite him to the fa cup final and so when you get big enough sample sizes it's it's sort of amazing how hard you it's fun it's really healthy in a went as, as a bookmaker because these sample sizes get so big that you're like you soon start to realize you really can have a crack. You can give these people a run. The problem, and I'm sure people will be like, like saying, like, oh, so why am I closed after one bet or whatever? Inevitably, there are certain strategies which are bad value for the bookmaker forever. I don't need to see 10,000 bets of someone, you know, backing bad each way horses. In. And people will tell me, like, oh, well, eight runner handicap, short price favorite, you know, why don't you just, uh, you know, some people actually said to me, like, why don't you just price those races better? It's like, you know, or why don't you just offer different each way terms? It's like, well, 
I can't if my neighbour is not offering different HOA terms, like online, we're talking, you know, if Bet365 or Labrook's not offering different HOA terms, I've got to go with that. And if I go up on odds checker and I'm just like worst price every horse, what does that look like? So eventually you come to the point where you're like, well, I've got to lose a bit on those types of races for the benefit of the broader product. But then if I've got a customer who only bets that kind of race, where I'm sort of locked in by those each way terms that sort of are the bedrock of you know, the UK horse racing industry, um, I, don't I don't need to, to take your record out. But I would say, yeah, I, in general, my opinion has just, you know, we've gone from hundreds to 500 to thousands to ten, and the bigger the odds, the more chance that you can have this wild hot streak. You know, I mean, the reality is, is that there's some people who bet on golf. If you're betting 50 to ones each week, if you hit three winners on the bounce early on in the account, you could be a poor as a church mouse come three years' time, but you, it, it can be a bit startling. You're like, oh, God, is this one three winners on the back? I went back to back, you know, in golf. Like, what's he known? You ask yourself, what do you think he knows? You can't know that suddenly someone's, you know, <laughs> each week someone suddenly found the myth, you know, found the mystical way to beat golf kind of thing. It's kind of, it's just, that is just variance. Well, one, one thing, I mean, I've been lucky enough to speak to a lot of professional punters and nearly all of them have said that keeping their edge is the, is the most difficult thing and their edges come and their edges go and finding another edge is the tricky thing of staying ahead of the game. So is it not worth bookmakers, like you sort of said, really giving people enough rope to, so they don't realise their edges run out until it's too late? Uh, I think so, although, yes. I absolutely think that. However, coming back to what I said about optimally monetizing that information, for the time that they have an edge, you've got to make sure you're not getting killed. And you've got to make sure that overall your books stay profitable. So there's this situation whereby this person could fall off a cliff at some point, but for the moment I've got to move aggressively, reshape the book each time they bet. And the funny thing is, is that you can get to this point where someone, you don't realise it, and they don't realise it, but their edge is gone. And there'll be a while where you're moving aggressively off them, and you really shouldn't be. If you, knew, if you could read the future, you'd know, well, this person's gone at the game. And so, in that period of time, that you'll be aggressively moving, pushing things out, and you create the next man's edge at this point. Because he's like, oh, they, these horses are always massively too big, you know, the price is on them you know, this type of horse or whatever, and it's because clearly someone else bets this other kind of horse. Um, but that is, you know, to what extent is any of this done now? You know, not so much, you know, like, you know, it's very rare. Um, but, you know, it's, it's um, I, I definitely believe that, you know, give people as long a period as you can. And even if after, you know, 100,000 bets, they turn out to be geniuses. Well, if I ever find someone who I can absolutely bank on to have the right view, and that's obviously worth something. Okay, and I'm interested that you were, we're moving quickly on to the betting exchanges. Now, I've seen you describe them in the early days as the Wild West. Now, what do you mean by that? It's very hard for me to confirm a lot of these stories because I've not met the individuals involved um, necessarily. But like the stories of, from what I understand, there was one or two individuals who tried to price every race for Betfair every single race people and these were not people who'd like as far as i understand these were not people who'd been like lifelong on-course bookmakers these were or something similar these were people who decided that they could do this and again i've never had anyone from betfair confirm this but the story goes that some of these people were bankrolled you know they were staked to provide liquidity and so on which i think is perfectly 
sensible, you know, when you're trying to get the exchange off the ground. Um, so you had people like this. Um, you had the early people who just thought that you could lay, you know, any big price and it was just free money. And there were, you know, disjointed markets where you'd have like, no one was betting very strong models and things like horse racing, just like the place versus the win market. You know, you'd quite often be like, hang on, this horse is like odds on to place, but it's like 20 to one in the win. Like, well, you know, someone's just not done the joined up thinking here kind of thing. And, or someone's got a very strong opinion about the place, but no opinion about the, you know. So it was, everything was very disjointed, whereas everything now moves fairly smoothly. As soon as something's gone in one market, it changes in another. And there's less complete cavalier, you know, like behavior in terms of just like suddenly putting up massive blocks of money. Like, um, you know, sometimes you just see like, oh, someone would like to have 50,000 on this horse at 9 a.m. at even money. And you're like, well, that's a fairly strong indicator that someone wants to back it. You know, you just be kind of like, right, okay. So you, you, it was a bit all over the place back then. Um, and a lot, lots more people used to just leave it. Like, so it'd be like, oh, okay. So what I do is I just, in the morning, log on. I want to back this horse at this price. I'll just put up a massive lump of money and go to lunch or whatever. And now everyone, you know, is either got a robot algorithmically trading it or if you want if you're a pro punter you're there like you know trying to feed it in or you're trying to move it around you know no one's there's a lot less casual cavalier behavior i would say um for certain um is that lack of mug money for one of a better words meant that there's less for the shrewdies to hoover up now so they sort of started looking elsewhere i think the idea of the large exchange whale who's going to be a big long-term loser, I feel like that definitely feels rare. The idea that there's guys who, I think, sadly, the, you know, the mug's always a, a tough word. The people who are going to struggle to make it pay often fall into the trader category. We, we can go online anywhere now. We can find thousands of ebooks and courses and so on about how to trade on Betfair, you know, make a tick here or there, this kind of stuff. And it's undoubtedly doable. There's undoubtedly people who've made fortunes doing it. But I think the number of people, you know, we actually see succeed at this is uh, it's a tiny fraction. You know, what the internet shows you is not the, not the reality. And I think a lot of those people give it a go and they get eaten up. So I think they're sort of the, the fish for the sharks as it exists right now. All right, Matthew, I want to continue on with that, that theme, uh, talking about the betting exchanges from the previous part. Now, the fact that there's not enough prey for the, for the sharks, on, arguably, on the exchanges, does that mean now that they're getting less accurate and you've got a chance taking, on, taking them on with the figures? I think... Um if I think about the people who have continued to grow the exchange, because like there's this idea that everyone is trading less, making less money on it at the sort of the top end, the professional end. I think the people who are willing to out and out be bookmakers essentially on the exchanges, the market makers, they have not experienced this same trend. Um, there are quite a few of them who are doing as much now as they ever have done. And these are people who are putting up, you know, on a football match, 
they're populating the win market, all the total goals lines, all the Asian handicaps, the correct score, everything. And they're doing that for every match, every day, live, pre-match, all the time. Those people who are doing that kind of uh, market making, I think um, are still having a good time of it. And the thing is, is that because that business model has stood the test of time, has worked well, they can never get, like fighting for your edge, you know, the people you've spoken to, they can never afford to drop the ball because it is a good pot to get hold of. If you can be the person that replaces one market maker by tooth and claw, you know, the Betfair is a perennial sort of a gladiator's arena. And, you know, often three, four, five, ten may enter the arena, but it always gets whittled down to one or two. So I think while at any given time there'll be only a couple of sharp opinions, really, really sharp opinions on the market-making side, they must have been incredibly successful to hold off these potential new competitors. So I think the uh, exchange market is still sharp because um, these people are still eating well. However, I do think there is a certain element of to market-make, you rarely hold very strong opinions. You're constantly moving your prices all the time, looking to sort of make these small margins. And so if you don't have a few people with really aggressively strong opinions, that, that you do lose something there. If the market can sort of be moved around quite easily by money, it always comes back to a solid average, sometimes an excellent average. But if you don't have the guy who's there going, I'm going to have you know, 100 grand on this horse, I'm going to start overnight, I'm going to put it in fivers, and then I'm going to do this, and I'm going to bluff this, and I'm going to fake that, push this price out. You know, then at 10 in the morning, I'm going to start calling commission agents, get some runners out. That person, the person who plots the massive bets, they may have got sick of Betfair, I can imagine. Those people may have just thought, oh, bugger it. Um, you know, whereas once upon a time when there was the fish money that was like, oh, I fancy laying this horse, I'll just put the money up and go to lunch. If that guy's not, those are the kind of, those people, those were the real bread and butter for the big, the people who are plotting the big state because they could just like snap that up and so now I've got a good amount of what I want to get on filled, quick and easy. So I think when they're constantly staring at, Ryan, so I've probably got three sets of bots here and they're all putting up fivers and tenors. It's going to take me best part of like four hours to do this and it's like, whereas there's still some on course, there's still betting shops, there's still other ways to get around this. So I think some of those may have just, yeah, just given up on it. Okay, now I'm gonna jump in there. Have they plunged into a dark pool? And tell us what these mysterious dark pools, and you're not the first person, I've, I've heard you talk about them on previous interviews, and other people have mentioned them to me in previous interviews. So are these dark pools a reality in the world of betting these days? And are those big high rollers going in there? And who's laying them? Well, I think um, in, in horse racing, it has predominantly been the commission agents that effectively are the dark pools, in the sense that if you're going to take, I don't know, whether it's 3p in the pound or whatever your commission rate is, um, and then some commission agents decided, do you know what, I won't charge commission, I'll try and just get on double the amount if I, you know. But eventually what commission agents all will find is that if you have four incredibly sharp punters all backing, you know, four different horses in a seven-runner race, you start to think, can they all be right? And the truth is they can if they all take the best price at the best time. You know, they can sort of all get value on their bets, but you start to realise, mm, maybe there's something I can do here 
to um, keep a little bit back. And I actually think that he does very well in the jumps. And he, to be honest, is more of a flat man, so I can not lay off as much of his. Suddenly, you get commission agents effectively sort of, it sort of can become a bookmaking enterprise at this point. And so then essentially they are a dark port in the sense in that, you know, at any given time, they don't have their prices published necessarily on a website or anything like that. So you call them up, ask for a price, see what I can do. They'll call you back a bit later, manage to get you this much at this amount. You know, what they may do is they may take the call, say like, what do you want? And says, oh, can you try and get me a grand on that sense too? Okay, right. Look there, no one else. And then suddenly the commission agents realize, oh, there's some people who are pricing up the whole race. I'll oh, call him up. Do you have any interest in laying ground at times too? So then suddenly you're doing what a lot of people just call cross-matching. So you've got punter A who's sharp, punter B who's sharp, and punter B just needs to get on. And so the reality is, is that eventually someone gets ground out. And so the commission, weirdly, the commission agent is constantly looking for places where they can get the bets on. And they're also constantly looking to, you know, manage that pool. Because in a way, you want to be um, in a situation where uh, you know, you've got some people are willing to lay bets. Uh, some people are very good on different, you know, disciplines. And um, and then, but the funny thing is, is, a lot of commission agents end up with a load of phone calls from people saying, um, "Oh, I want to have you know these five each way bets and this sixteen runner handicap." And it's like, with a commission agent, they're kind of like, "Well, it's a tough game, that really." If I go and have all those bets with any online sources I've got, I'll just get burned. If I go into shops, I've got my runners wasting time trying to get 25 each way on 16 runner handicapper. You know, it's like, it can sort of, so in, the, in a weird way, the dark pools are basically, certainly for horse racing, the commission agent structure, I'd say. And, you know, it, that's got to be one of the hardest games in the world, I'd say. I'd okay. say that's, that is, you know, I, I remember speaking to a guy and he was basically chained to the exchanges all day, every day, as well as, you know, several phones on the go at once, all of this stuff. And it was just, it's just a recipe for burnout, to be honest. But yeah, that, that sort of is that kind of dark pool. In terms of like big punters crossing off in other sports, definitely happens. Um, definitely in the US commission agent, that sort of uh, Costa Rican offshore environment. It's definitely people who are, you know, happy to leave, or oh, I'm trying to back this team at plus seven. And that commission agent will sort of fish around, say anyone interested in taking this. But, um, but yeah, the, much like the Betfair sort of gladiatorial arena, is that if there's ever one person who's dominant, well, they burn out, they burn their outs. And they burn their outs not because they're not willing to take a bet anymore, it's just because they've got no money left. So. You have the same people end up with it. Um, now, you've got this vast knowledge and experience in the industry, so do you punt? Uh, very little, very little now, pretty much all the betting I do comes in the form of, uh, I advise someone and they sort of might give me a little cut of, uh, what they're doing off the back of the advice. Long time I used to price up golf still, even after I stopped doing golf as a trader, uh, when I was in the finance world. And I just used to send the numbers, my, my tissue if you like. And uh, the guy I work with, he would then bet it and cut me in for a bit. To be honest, for someone, I, I'm, um, I'm a nervous punter at the best of times. So, um, and I am, you know, <sighs> afflicted with the inability to pull the trigger a lot of the time. So in a weird way, 
the best thing for me is to pass information on to those who are happy to be maniacs. Excellent, because this is what in this last part we want you to pass the information on to the punters that are looking to beat the bookmakers. I've heard you say in an interview, probably the same interview that I've, the other things I've talked about, that there was something you was doing in an account, I won't mention the bookmaker, that looked muggy, like a loser after loser, but was sure to win in the long term. Now that sounds like a perfect strategy, especially when it's hard to get on. Does that still work? And can you tell us a little bit about what this strategy yeah, was? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, to be honest, it's, um, it's, it, it'll, it's uh, I can't go into the full, the, essentially it's backing very short prices. And there's always been angles in terms of backing very, I think in horse racing, the old studies used to get white papers like 20 years ago that, you know, backing shorter than two on even was almost just profitable SP once upon a time. You know, people don't want to back very, very short prices. It's very hard to take a bet on it as a bookmaker. And um, as a consequence, you often get this skew whereby, you know, they tend to go, they, everyone wants to back the dog. People don't, you know, in sort of this kind of situation when there's a very, people like backing favorites, but when the favorite gets too strong, they start to look at the dog. This is sort of the relationship. Um, and so, really really strong favorites and things like i don't know the premier league or whatever they're pretty they, they get that balance right and the bet very much clearly shows you you know shows you the way there um but where it becomes tricky is that you know when people started doing all sorts of football football handball volleyball god knows what all sorts of this everywhere and um you got to this point where if you started to really dive into it you just found pockets where it's like this team doesn't lose at home. It just doesn't have this crappy league. Whenever anyone goes to this club, you know, they get a hiding. And, you know, you sort of start to look through the mathematics of it. And you're like, okay, so everyone who runs this kind of rating model will think that this team's got half a chance. But the reality is, is that the rate, classical sort of simple ratings models won't factor in the fact that the only reason that this is, the only reason this can be 10 on is if, you know, there's a fire in the stadium or something like that, and they like halfway through they they allow the score, allow the game to stand because the other team's one 0 up or whatever, you know. And the reality is is that um, that should be one oh one or it's it's done. So there's very short prices. And funny enough, the the, per, the the absolute master of this once upon a time was Harry Finlay. Harry Finlay knew that Steve Davis over a long format in snooker wasn't bloody getting beaten for a period of time. It just wasn't happening. And so when bookmakers would chalk up the 10 to one, 10 on or whatever, it'd be like, it's, it's one, 1001 this, you know, it just doesn't lose. And Harry absolutely, he did it in tennis, I think did in a variety of areas, but snooker's the one I classically remember. But he's like, these things are absolutely, you know, as, as we used to say, buying money. Although I quite prefer the uh, American expression bridge jumper. I think Dr. Zimba described them as bridge. But you know, these really short priced horses, things like that. So basically I've worked out in my mind what was a decent enough way to find um, very short odds type propositions that, um, that would uh, you know, have this kind of element in it. And I mean, the funny, the, what it also happened at the similar time is there was a tipping service that came out that actually specialised in the same thing. And I thought to myself, and I thought to myself, originally, initially I thought, oh gosh, but it didn't seem to be back, back, back in much more high profile stuff, which I felt like that, that wasn't the way to go. But you know, I was sort of like, so then middle of the day, 
I'd add, you know, spreadsheets up and everything. The other day, you'd be looking like that and be like, oh, okay, this, you know, Lithuanian basketball or whatever. And uh, I'd sort of plug it in. I'd be like saying, all right, well, I think this is like a 105 shot. Log on. Oh, look, it's 1.21 or something like that. And you'd be like, okay. And having those bets, don't know. It's funny. I, I heard about someone who bet at Skybet when Skybet couldn't go below 1.01, bet 1.01s that really were like absolutely certainties. And they looked through his account after God knows how long. And it just turned out this guy had smashed every 101 every single day, all the bloody time, and cleaned up doing it. I mean, you've got to have big stakes. But I think everyone's there. It's very easy as a bookmaker to think, what, really? You're going to have 100 grand to win, like, you know, like a grand. Like, it's just madness. But it's like, value is value, isn't it, at the end of the day? But yeah, so I had this idea. And anyway, as is often the variance of it, you know, you're sort of tri trialing this out with a few different bookmakers. And then, yeah, this, this, this account just got chinned, like 1.1 shot chinned, 1.2 shot chinned, 1.15 shot chinned. And I was just like, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Anyway, yeah, but I just found it funny. It didn't take many of these to get chinned before I got a phone call asking me if I'd like. I think, I think the great thing was the opening gambit was, uh, we'll give you some free spins on the, uh, oh, good, thanks. <laughs> it's, it's funny because I, I, felt, I felt a bit insulted. But the funny thing is, even I'm such a... So, so low on confidence at times, I started thinking, God, maybe this is the worst idea I've ever had. But, you know, not, for, the funny thing is, for a while it was, I was doing it, it took quite a lot of time to do. Um, you know, I, I hadn't figured out a way to automate it or anything like that. Um, and to be honest, I get very bored very easily. And to be honest, backing very short prices is very boring. So, One last question. This is a yes or no answer, really. Is there a point due to more and more sophisticated modelling and algorithms used by bookmakers that they'll be able to squeeze any edge there is out of a straight playing punter? Or has a punter always got a chance of finding that? Punter will always have a chance, always, by virtue of the fact that um, adverse selection means that they get to choose when they bet, bookmakers don't. You know, it's impossible for anyone to put up algorithmically or otherwise, impossible to be 100% perfect all the time. Just simply not possible. So, um, I, yeah, I, I think the punter will always have a chance. Tremendous. Well, thanks very much, uh, Matthew Trahel. Thank it's you very much. It's been a pleasure. New Betting People interviews are published every week at Star Sports. Exclusive interviews with the key people from the world of sports betting. Check out our full library of interviews at starsportsbet.com. .co.uk. Begambleaware.org. Over 18 only.